This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Valentine's Day if you're celebrating. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We welcomed Jugmeet Singh to Fight Back this past week. The federal NDP leader has made a major election promise, although an election has yet to be called. And it stems from the terrible death and devastation related to COVID-19 in long-term care. Jagmeet Singh's plan is to abolish for-profit nursing homes with a 10-year timeline to accomplish this goal. The federal NDP leader joined Libby Snymer on Wednesday to talk about his bold move and the toll COVID-19 has taken. When we look at COVID-19, it is it has impacted all of us in some way. We know people who have lost their jobs or people have, have lost their businesses. We know that it has been extremely hard on families with kids. It's been hard on teachers, on workers. It's been hard on so many people, education workers. But of everyone that's been impacted by COVID-19, what is the most heartbreaking is how COVID-19 has impacted our seniors and how seniors, particularly those living in long-term care, have borne the brunt of this pandemic. And what we saw and what we learned from this pandemic is that for-profit homes were where we found the worst conditions. Seniors were in the worst conditions. They were the highest rates of infection and the highest deaths. And I want to do something about it. And I don't want this to just be a pandemic response. I feel like these problems we know have been around for so long. We need to act now to fix long-term care. And we've got a plan to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, it is true that the worst cases are with for-profit homes. But uh, a lot of people say that it's it's not the for-profit part, that it's simplistic to look at it that way, that the problem is that for the most part, they are the older homes where you have multiple people in a room. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I say the evidence is the evidence is really clear that um, even if there's multiple people in a home, when you've got the right levels of staffing, you can keep people safe. So what we found uh, very clearly is for-profit homes are where corners are cut to make a profit. Staffing is cut. The quality of food is cut. And when the goal is to put people or to put profit ahead of people, people suffer. And for profit, the model inherently is flawed. We've got some for profit homes that took public help. Sienna and Extended Care took public money to to deal with the pandemic and then turned around and paid out dividends, millions of dollars to their shareholders. The flaw is when you're looking at profit in a system that's supposed to care for the vulnerable, corners are cut. And seniors can't raise their voice many times. These are folks who are dealing with dementia and other challenges. We have people that are vulnerable and they're getting exploited for money and it is wrong. When you're sending money to a for-profit home, some of that money is going to make it into the pockets of shareholders or to enrich somebody. When you're talking about not-for-profit or you're talking about public, all of the money is going towards care. And that's one of the biggest problems. For-profit inherently has to factor in some profit, which means that all the money is not going to care that should be going towards care. And that is why it's inherently flawed. 
That's why for-profit care is problematic in any healthcare. That's why we got rid of for-profit because it's more costly, it's more expensive, and it hurts people. But particularly when we're talking about vulnerable seniors, for-profit means all the money is not going towards the care of these seniors. Some of the money ends up going towards profit, and that is that is just outrageous. How do you think you accomplish this, that you have a transition, you know, so that for-profit exits the business? I mean, is there compensation? It it just seems like a very complicated undertaking. It is, but it's very much the same type of undertaking when we tried to get rid of private hospitals. There were private hospitals operating in Canada when we brought in Universal Medicare. That was also a challenge. It's a challenge, but it's worth fighting. And uh, there are a number of tactics we, we, in our plan, laid out having a task force evaluate the best way to do it. Some of the ideas include, include putting a moratorium that no new bets can be for-profit. They have to be not-for-profit. Uh, we need to invest massively in, in long-term care and invest in our healthcare system broadly. Uh, so there's a number of steps we can take. We just need to get behind this idea. The evidence makes it clear for-profit has been demonstrably and clearly evidence-based worse we need to now acknowledge that and then do something about it, which is to remove that profit. We've got a plan to do so. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh with Libby on Wednesday. The following day, Jagmeet Singh joined the annual general meeting of CARP as one of the keynote speakers. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. As we've been reporting since last weekend, Villa Leonardo Gambin Long-Term Care Home in Vaughan is at the center of alleged COVID-19 vaccine queue jumping. A whistleblower nurse on staff there has filed a grievance, stating she was ordered to vaccinate non-frontline staff and family members of board members and to falsify the paperwork by designating them as frontline workers. Apparently, she was even offered the opportunity to inoculate her own family members. The homeowners say they merely scrambled to make sure no doses went to waste when they had some extra. Libby Snymer spoke with Ann Waller, local president and business manager of Leuna Local 3000, the union which represents the whistleblower nurse. I was uh, quite frankly in shock. Um, I was angry that it had been allowed to happen. Um, I was concerned, uh, not only for our member, but certainly for the um, the residents and the other staff uh, that work at Villa Leonardo Gambine, because it was clear that these individuals that are not either frontline staff or essential caregivers were allowed into a facility that was an outbreak, um, potentially infecting them as well. Um, so, yeah, I was just generally shocked and concerned all around. Other institutions like hospitals, uh, the same thing has happened. And they said, hey, we just ended up with an open vial, extra doses. So we got it into the arms of whoever we could get in there. But when you look at this particular instance, you're saying that it was at least 15 doses, that uh, there's an allegation that a doctor, you know, left with five doses, uh, presumably for personal use. Uh, And, you know, you've got to wonder, how could you get hold of those family members so quickly in what uh, a matter of an hour or so uh, where the where the doses could go uh, bad? 
Also, the allegation that uh, that they were using leftover doses, the Moderna vial uh, holds 10 vaccines, 10 doses. Um, at the end of the day, there were seven doses left in one of the in one of the vials. Um, the nurse uh, dispensed those doses. However, after she left, an additional four doses were dispensed. Uh, so, which we didn't. She she found from paperwork the following morning. So the the assertion that they were using leftover vaccine before it went to waste certainly wouldn't fly, in my opinion, uh, with respect to the additional doses that were given uh, after the nurse left. I thought that every home or facility is supposed to have a plan uh, about what to do if there are extra doses when you open a vial and, and finish with everyone who is supposed to get it. So we learned following um, the story being released that uh, the Ministry of Health, the, the intention was that a vial wasn't supposed to be unsealed until a number of the exact number of people that would get doses from that vial were available to take it. It's unclear whether or not that protocol was in place at the time that this occurred or it was put in place, you know, after the story broke. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, um, there doesn't appear to have been that protocol in place or really um, very strict guidelines in place at the time that the first vaccine clinic occurred. The second vaccine clinic occurred this past Sunday, and it was supervised by public health. And I uh, I understand that the uh, the guidelines were, were quite strictly enforced on uh, who was receiving the vaccine and how it was being recorded. What happens next with this? As far as the nurse goes or what's happening with respect to the vaccines, is public right, health the, is the, now supervising? Yeah, Sorry, the investigation. Ahead. I mean, it, it, are there consequences possible for this? Absolutely, yeah. So public health is, is doing an investigation and there are consequences. They could be fined, the license could be revoked. Um, and also, uh, my understanding is that public health also reported the removal of the vaccine to York Regional Police, and that's under investigation as well. Ann Waller, local president and business manager of Leuna Local 3000, the union which represents the nurse at Villa Leonardo Gambin, who blew the whistle on vaccine queue jumping. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the loopholes and discrepancies around the new travel restrictions. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Zoomers have been missing travel during the pandemic, but most of us understand that the time to travel will come again. For now, though, in the interest of public safety, we're being asked to stay put and stay home. For those who are tempted to get on a plane, there is a patchwork of COVID regulations in place to discourage travel and try to prevent more COVID or variants of COVID from coming into Canada. 
to prevent a March break surge, direct flights to the Caribbean and Mexico have been banned. But there is a loophole. Travelers could take an American airline with a short stopover in the U.S., In addition, the governing Trudeau liberals will require a negative test from people who drive across the border, not just those on flights. But the failure to present one at a land crossing will result in an expensive fine being refused entry or a requirement to spend three days and $2,000 for a hotel quarantine like there will be for airline passengers. To discuss, Libby was joined on Wednesday by air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash, president of Travel Secure Inc., Martin Firestone, and airline industry analyst and McGill University professor, Dr. Carl Moore. I guess they could, you know, theoretically, at least by letting the airlines, U.S. airlines, say you can't fly people through. Now, a certain degree, there's a civil rights issue that if you fly me to New Jersey and I decide to get in a plane and fly to Mexico, what is what is it is the business of the U.S.? I think it'd be, in theory, possible. I think it'd be practically tough to do. And if you're allowing uh, Canadians to fly down to the States, and, you know, we have a huge relationship with the country, many, many Canadians live there and go there for the, uh, for the winter, I think it'd be really hard to do on a practical level. Marty, do you know of clients who uh, want to take a March break and who are just going that way? We had a caller, you know, tell everybody on the air that's what he was going to do. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, this latest restriction or when it does go into place, or actually the, the, the airline suspension did already, they're finding other ways of going down, but not the one-week March break. I think they quelled that issue real quickly because people weren't going to start COVID test down, COVID test back, 14-day quarantine. So, that one weaker is finished with, but the snowbird has found his way many ways to get down to the Caribbean, Mexico, and for that matter, the U.S., where the flights aren't suspended. Let's bring in Gabor Lukash. He is a passenger rights activist. What do you make of the fact that that Canadian passengers, we can't take a flight down to the Caribbean or Mexico, but uh, we can hop on an American plane and do just that, just with a little well, stopover? Uh, I, I- as for American Airlines are concerned, they have sufficient demand possibly through their American hubs. In terms of um, shutting down those flights, I think the government made the right decision. Uh, certainly, there could be tighter decisions. Uh, the, the point was not to, it was not a prohibition. Airlines weren't told you cannot fly as a binding order, but rather there was an agreement reached between the airlines and the government. And I'm quite sure the airlines did receive something one way or another in return, I've just listened to, to what Carl had to say, and and uh, certainly, um, given the size of the of uh, Canada, the physical size of Canada, the geographical size of Canada, we, we I'm not disputing for even a single moment that uh, airlines are important. What is a concern that airlines that disobey the law they can in the long run be more burden than benefit because they're not internationally competitive. Even if somehow Canadian consumers may put up with what airlines are doing, the fiasco around refund, which is really, a, I, I would be inclined to be more as a form of theft than doing business as usual. International consumers who have a choice, who can go to American Airlines, for example, will be taking their business there. In our Facebook group, I'm seeing a number of people commenting, well, if I will ever be able to fly again, uh, if I will be able to help it, I will be flying with an American airline because there I will get a refund when the flight is canceled by the airline. 
the government is doing a disservice to airlines, not simply by not giving them bailouts, which I think is, is, is a whole separate issue, uh, whether it should be given in what form, whether it should be a form of equity or other form, but also in terms of not having told them right from the beginning that you absolutely must immediately refund passengers so that your reputation, your passenger goodwill will be preserved. That's a far higher asset. That's the most important asset an airline, any business that takes money in advance can have. If people lose their faith in them getting service in exchange for uh, the money they pay in advance, they will not make bookings. Marty, what would you like to leave us with? That uh, my clientele, from this perspective, are are totally against all these this, uh, restrictions, or at least the hotel one seems to be the one that's really a thorn at this point. And they have to be very concerned about staying out of the country too long, because of course we have some restrictions with respect to OHIP and U.S. tax filing. So mm-hmm. that's become a big thing to discuss another time, probably. President of Travel Secure Inc., Martin Firestone, air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukash, and airline industry analyst and McGill University professor, Dr. Carl Moore. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Some of the thousands of Canadians told they would have to repay federal emergency COVID-19 benefits will get to keep the money after all. Self-employed Canadians who'd applied for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit based on their gross income instead of their net income won't have to pay back the cash. This affects nearly 450,000 Canadians, including many Zoomers who make extra money by doing a bit of work. The federal Liberals have admitted they gave confusing information early on as to whether the threshold was 5,000 gross or 5,000 net. Earlier this year, they sent letters telling recipients they may be required to pay that money back. Some already have. But those taxpayers will now get that money back. Which begs the question, what about those people who understood and obeyed the rules correctly and never applied for that money? Libby was joined to discuss the Serb confusion with Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If someone applied for this, um, and knew they weren't eligible and defrauded the system, I say throw the book at them. I say they have to pay it back. I say they know what they were doing, um, and they should face the full consequences of the law. On the other hand, if someone was genuinely unclear, they called up the government and said, am I eligible for this? And the government said they were. Um, it becomes a lot harder to argue that they did something wrong here. So the government screwed this up, um, and unfortunately, that means the rest of us are stuck paying the bill for it because of their mistake. The minister, Carla Qualtro, said in the past that uh, everything is based on your net income when it comes to taxes. So is that a reasonable argument? Yeah, again, I put the fault at the city of the government on this. If you call the government and ask them for clarification about a program and they give you an answer, you should be able to rely on that answer. And the problem here is that people have not been able to rely on it. Um, you know, it is difficult for someone to, to tell someone you have to pay that back when they say, well, I wasn't sure. I asked them and they told me I was eligible. Um, and, I mean, you can debate whether or not the government should have set that particular criteria in the first place. After all, if you're trying to replace income for someone who made $5,000, why do they need 14000 I think that's the more obvious question. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whether or not they have to pay any back, I think there's a moral imperative to the question is whether legally the government can tell them to, even after telling them in the first place, no, you know, you're eligible for this program. Why do you think they changed their minds? 
Yeah, I think the government realized that it was going to be a nightmare to collect on a lot of this debt. Um, I think they could have maybe found some middle ground. For example, you pay some of it back, you pay it back without interest, we give you a while to pay it back. Um, you pay back a certain amount depending on what your actual uh, net income was. But they took the easy route. Um, you know, under normal circumstances, I think this would be a massive boondoggle. The circumstance, though, is that we're in the pandemic. And the whole reason this program was a blunt instrument is that they rolled it out in a matter of weeks. I mean, under normal circumstances, you would never design a program this big um, that quickly for precisely this reason. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very unfortunate. It's going to have co- costing taxpayers billions, I'm sure. Um, but it's hard to come up with the perfect solution, you know, uh, you know, without having a time machine to go back and fix it. One of the things that we saw with a lot of the programs is they'd give something uh, to some group and then immediately there'd be somebody else with their handout. Do you see this uh, leading to either resentment or to demands for some kind of parity with uh, some other people who are disadvantaged by this? There are going to be people who resent the fact that they play by the rules and didn't take the money. And as a result, they don't get 14000 whereas these people did. And there's going to be multiple cases of that on multiple programs. And, and I don't have an easy answer to those things because, again, this was a situation where they had a gun to their head and it was a choice of getting the money out the door fast or taking forever in order to make it perfectly targeted. And I, I think a lot of people would have had difficulty had that been the case. So my approach to this has been, and I think a lot of Canadians take this view too, you know, Early on, we're willing to cut them a lot of slack, but as they go along, and this is why I have called for changes and improvements to these programs as the pandemic has progressed, as they've had time to fix them, they should fix them, plug the holes, close the loopholes, get back the money you can, with not demanding that they be perfect, but demanding they recognize, you know, they obviously didn't get it perfect at the outset, and they have a lot of fixing up to do as they go along. Aaron Woodrick, Federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. George in Brampton phoned about the confusion over the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. I live in Brampton. I'm on welfare and I received a phone call on my landlord's telephone from the welfare office, and the man was very insistent that I apply for CERB. And I told him, I don't qualify. I didn't earn $5,000. And he insisted, go go ahead, apply for it. He gave me a website to go to, and he told me to use my welfare number to apply for it. I've met a lot of people, like homeless people and other welfare recipients, who did apply for it. Joan in North York also called about the confusion over CERB and feels it's been turned into a political matter. Looking with what Trudeau's doing right now with the traveling, changing his mind or not putting up, like he didn't think about what to do at the beginning and with this tax grab some people are getting, it's, he's politicking. He wants to have a, an election soon and he'll figure the people will like him because he was so good to the ones that were more dishonest. 
So that's my take on it. Kelly in Toronto called about the queue jumping at Villa Leonardo Gambin in Vaughan. I think uh, that this head of this nursing home that did this should be fired and nothing left. This, if you just give them a slap on the hand, everybody will do it. If they see the message is this kind of activity leads to firing, they'll think twice about it. Because this is sickening what has happened. And not that I want to offend anybody's family members, but who are they? If I said to my brother, come forward, he'd say, no, I'm in my 50s. I'll wait for that age category. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Massimo in Toronto, the owner of La Vecchia Restaurants, who's frustrated by the way COVID lockdowns have been handled. I own two restaurants in the city, one in Young Street and one in Etobicoke. And I wanted to agree with the lady that how difficult it is to reopen and close and reopen and close. A lot of our staff left completely the business. So we don't know who's coming back and who's not. That's one thing. Second thing is, when they start opening last year, when the first uh, lockdown, they announced it a week before the Toronto's opening. We couldn't even make it in time. We had to work four days straight to reopen the business. Day and night to make sure that we have enough staff, that we make our ordering, that we do the whole process for the reopening. It's extremely hard and excruciating, the fact of opening and closing. It's not a switch that you can turn on and off anytime you want. They don't give us enough time for the opening. They don't tell us what's the procedures. They, they, they're not clear on any of the procedures that has to be done. And it's extremely excruciating for the business that we, we, we deal with, especially restaurants. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join Libby tomorrow for a special Family Day Fight Back and join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.